Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses uh, 11 through 14. If you have a Bible, the ushers are walking down the aisles, so if you need one. We're going to read from the uh, ESV version, so if you're KGV, sorry about that. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> uh, but let's, uh, let's turn to chapter 2. I'll give you a minute or two. Verse 11 reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray again. Lord, thank you so much that um, I am a nobody wanting to tell everybody here about a somebody, and that's you. We know, God, that we do not deserve your, your grace or salvation, but you have given it to us. So today, Lord, I pray as we review a lot of things that are familiar, that we would not grow cold, but instead would be on fire for your truth, for your way, for our good, and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I titled this message, Saved by Grace. This morning, I'd like to draw your attention to three main points. One, the reality of saving grace. That can be seen in verse 11. Two, the character of redeemed people. Verses 12 and 14. And three, the consummation and goal of saving grace, seen in verses 13 and 14. Now, verse 11 reads, let's go to verse 11. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first point I want to draw out here is the reality of saving grace. From this verse, a few key words stand out. Grace of God and salvation for all people. These truths are familiar to Christians and are essential to Christianity. You cannot experience salvation if you have not received God's grace. And you cannot possess genuine salvation apart from God's grace. Scripture after scripture show the connection between the grace of God and salvation. To simplify it, God's grace and salvation can be described as saving grace. Now, I found a a commentary helpful in... uh, describing the grace of God. This is multifaceted like a diamond. You can go many directions with this. But listen to how this is defined. New Testament concept, grace of God, is defined as his beneficial activity on behalf of humans, both corporately and individually. God's grace towards us is based solely on his love for our inability to meet God's standards. 
God's grace is a gift we do not deserve and cannot earn. Without grace, there can be no salvation, since grace is foundation to salvation, foundational to salvation. End quote. Now, <clears throat> throughout the New Testament, uh, we can see examples of saving grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. I'll read these. You don't need to turn there. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Acts 15.11 But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And then Titus 3.7 So that being justified by His grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now back to our passage in Titus here. 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, I know a lot of us in this room are Christians, and we've been, that, been for a while, and maybe some, some in this room are not, and you're hearing this for the first time. The salvation plan of God is a timeless truth and does not get old. Often reoccurring truth remembered by believers. So let's review some familiar truths here. Bear with me. Most of the time will be in point one. To do that, let's go back in time to the beginning. The story of Adam and Eve, also described as the fall of man. You see, Adam, the first human being on the face of the earth, also known as our parents, so sorry if some of you thought you were from monkeys, uh, you're not. Uh, they were created innocent and enjoyed intimate fellowship with God. God placed them in the Garden of Eden where he made them stewards of the garden there was an abundance of trees available for food. Not trees for smoking, by the way. For food. Uh, God gave them liberty to eat freely from any, any tree they desired except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God warned them if they touched or ate from that tree, they would die. That was the only prohibition God gave them, and he was firm with what he said, and they needed to obey his word. However, they were deceived into believing a lie about God's truth and gave in to the temptation of Satan and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God's word and partook of the forbidden fruit. And this led to a severe consequences for humanity. Their disobedience brought sin into the world and a penalty of death. It infected the entire human race since that time forward. All men are born sinners all men are lost. Now, um, <clears throat> there's this ministry called Answers in Genesis. It's uh, founded by Ken Ham. Uh, I remember his name because I like ham and eggs. Um, <laughs> just a little side note. <laughs> uh, he talks about five effects that happened from the fall. One was loss of righteousness. Two was separation from God. Adam and Eve had intimate fellowship with God, but... They, they lost it. They hid themselves because they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. The third effect is a cursed environment. We now have thorns and thistles changing the way the um, <clears throat> natural world works. 
Fourth is physical death. Every one of us in this room, unfortunately, have a date with death. It's not if, it's just when. And then the fifth effect from the fall is clothing, which I think some of you are enjoying with your shopping sprees, right? (laughs) We now have to wear clothing because of the fall. Now, the New Testament describes the fall succinctly. Uh, In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, from an initial read of the account of Adam and Eve, I know it could seem dark, grim, like a bad ending, a lost cause without hope, but it's not. The book of Genesis records a drastic change for humanity, but it also introduces us to the first mention of the good news, the gospel. In addition, God's grace can be seen through his intervention, as we can see his divinely planned to redeem man. Let me show you where this is at in Genesis 3.15. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. But it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first mention of the gospel. It describes a battle between good and evil. The seed of the woman is none other than Jesus Christ. He would crush the head of Satan by his death, burial, and resurrection. Satan would only be able to to bruise the heel of Christ by having him crucified. You see, God could have allowed man to stay in his guilty status and been done with the human race, but instead chose to be gracious and provided a way for man to be redeemed. Now, um, theologian uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, one of my favorites, in his book, Bible Doctrine, he talks about four needs we have as fallen sinners. He says, one, we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. Two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Three, we are separated from God by our sins. And four, we are in bondage in sin and to the kingdom of Satan. He goes on to say that all of these needs are met in Christ. Because Christ became a sacrifice a propitiation, a reconciler, and a redeemer. See, the first Adam failed us, but Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded. This also is captured very well in Romans 15. It says, Romans 5, 15, it says, But, but the, the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one, how much more did God, God's grace, and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Now back to verse 11. Now we're back to Titus here. Sorry about that. We needed to go there, but it says, The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now hopefully you can see the connection between salvation was initiated by God all because of his grace. If God didn't intervene, man would never receive grace. And salvation and grace are introduced in the Old Testament, now a reality in Christ in the New Testament. He is the grace of God 
that appeared that brought salvation to all men. Know that now that those have experienced salvation are changed. That leads me to point two, the character of redeemed people. This is in verses 12 and 14. Let's go to verse 12. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now this verse covers some fundamentals of Christianity. Sinners become saints. Sinners become saints. God's salvation saves, but it also sanctifies. It trains us to be more Christ-like. We also see in verse 14, Jesus makes us pure and ready to do good works. In the context of the book of Titus, Paul writes to the Christians about how they are to behave and what they are to believe. This, found, this passage is foundational to truth to Christianity. Now, verse 12 mentions two things we are to negatively deny and three things we are to affirm positively. It deals how we're to be in our personal walk, how we are to be in our relationship with others, and how we're to be in relationship with, with God. Let's look at two things we are to denounce or renounce. To deny or renounce. Ungodliness. It means to have a lack of reverence for and devotion to God. Titus 1.16 gives an example of ungodliness. It says, They profess to know God, but they deny them by their works. This is ungodliness. The other thing we are to deny or renounce is worldly passions. Holman's Bible Dictionary defines it as any body desire which leads to sin and further states, unregenerate life is characterized by slavery to passions. Those who belong to Christ have crucified fleshly passions. This morning, I'd like to challenge you. How are you doing in your walk with the Lord? Are you saying no to ungodliness? Are you living any, in any way that exhibits a lack of reverence for God? Are you saying no to worldly passions? Are you being led by the Spirit or by the flesh? Now back to verse 12. As mentioned, negatively, we are to deny ungodliness and worldly passions. However, positively, we are to affirm three things. One, self-control among ourselves. Two, upright righteousness towards others, our relationships. And three, godliness towards God. Let's look at each one briefly. We are to affirm self-control. Self-control is translated as to live sensibly. It's defined as with sound mind, soberly, temperately, discreetly. James T. Draper writes, We are to live a self-control, a disciplined life, 
bowing before Christ as Lord, if our life is in control under the leadership of the Spirit of God, we will have no trouble rejecting ungodliness or worldly lust. End quote. How are you doing in self-control? In addition to living self-controlled, we are to live upright lives. This is the second thing we are to affirm. Righteous living. Living upright means to live righteously. It's living properly as is right. Author Jerry Bridges, who is now home with the Lord, he writes, quote, Upright or righteous conduct refers to just and right actions towards other people, doing to them what we would have them do to us. Christianity has a lot to do with relationships. It's like the, I don't know if you ever heard of the big L. It's loving God and loving people. It's loving God and loving people. We are to be people who exhibit compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. We are to be this, this way towards people, people, whether they're a Christian or not. Whether your boss, neighbor, family member is a Christian or not. We are to adorn the gospel of God by making it attractive to a dying world and to people that surround us in our daily rhythms of life. The third thing we are to affirm is godliness. Again, quoting my boy Jerry Bridges, sorry about that. He says, Godliness is having a regard for God's glory and God's will in every aspect of our lives, doing everything out of reverence and love for him. Scripture says, We are the aroma to Christ, to God, among those that are being saved and those that are perishing. Christians, we're to be godly. Wherever we go, we are ambassadors. We, are, we represent Christ. At school, work, our neighborhood, our jobs, our behavior and actions demonstrate what we believe and what we hope in. We are to have proper belief, which is orthodoxy, and we're to have proper behavior, which is orthopraxy. Living godly makes salvation believable. Living godly silences critics and makes our testimony believable. Living godly makes the Bible believable. John MacArthur writes, The church's greatest testimony before the world is spiritual integrity. When Christians live below the standards of biblical morality and reverence for their Lord, they compromise the full biblical truth concerning the character, plan, and will of God. By doing so, they seriously weaken the credibility of the gospel and lessen their impact on the world. End quote. Third point, and we're almost we're bringing the plane for a landing, as they say. Third point, the consummation and goal of saving grace. This can be seen in verses 13 and 14. It reads, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, in these verses, we see some, again, some deep theological truths 
It's loaded with doctrine that all believers should know well. I think if Nick was to preach this, it would be a 20-part series, but I'm, he, he's not, and I'm just going to do it real quick here. Um, verses 13 and 14 mention some deep truths. The return of Christ, the deity of Christ, redemption by Christ, sanctification through Christ, and good works for Christ. All in that, those two verses. Now, in the previous points, we covered how the salvation of plan of God was introduced in Genesis. Then we looked how it appeared by the coming of Jesus in Titus, this passage. Now we see how salvation trains and changes us. These verses speak of the coming of Christ, which will be in glory. This is what we're working towards. This is the goal we're striving for. This is the consummation of our salvation. It will be perfected and completed. You see, salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. And that's what we're talking about now, future. This whole passage has been discussing each part. Past, salvation from the penalty of sin, which is justification. Present, which is salvation from the power of sin, which is sanctification. And future, salvation from the presence of sin, which is glorification. Now, as believers, we experience all tenses of salvation. Hopefully you can see Christian is part of a process that begins and leads to a finish. There is a goal we are working towards as believers, to be united with our Savior and Lord. This is the blessed hope we have. One author calls it realized redemption. St. Germone writes, quote, I promise this is the last quote. <laughs> he says, quote, But when we live in Christ chastely and justly, that is, sinning neither in body nor in mind, we should also live piously in this world. This piety awaits blessed hope and the coming of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For just as in piety dreads the advent of the great God, so piety awaits him, confident concerning his work and faith. End quote. In other words, if we're living our salvation out, we'll be ready for the coming of the Lord. We'll be confident at his return. Those who fail to live by these truths will shrink back and not be ready. One pastor said, if we're not excited for the return of Christ, it might be because we love the world a little bit too much. Christ, Christ will return, and he is returning for his possessions. His people are living now in anticipation for his return. While we wait as God's redeemed people, we are to be doing good works. Not because they save, but because they give evidence of our faith. Ephesians 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in conclusion, I want to encourage you this morning Trust in Jesus for salvation. Turn from your sins. Put your faith and trust in Christ and what he did on the cross by being crucified, buried, and rising from the grave on the third day. If you are a Christian, Christian, continue to grow in your salvation. 
living these truths out. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, adorning, adorning the gospel, increasing in the knowledge of God, living pure and doing good works as sojourners in this passing world. On our way to be united with Christ when he returns. And then uh, I just want to give you some practical suggestions here. If you're struggling in your walk, ask for help. It's not weakness to ask for help. It's weakness not to ask for help. Because we're meant to battle together. There's no lone rangers, no lone Christians here. We're a family. We're a community. So if you're struggling in your walk and godliness or worldly passions or any of those things, talk to your elders. Talk to your home group leaders. Talk to somebody. It's not weakness to ask for help. Get, be accountable. Find somebody you can meet with regularly on a regular basis to work, work out whatever you're struggling with, to pray and to encourage each other. You know, I know as Americans we pride ourselves on independence and private lives. Um, Christianity is personal, but it's not private. Christianity is personal, but it's not private. Christianity teaches interdependence. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Forgive one another. There's a community that we're to be a part of. So I'd encourage you to get prayer, talk to someone. Let's battle together. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for letting us review this great salvation that we get to experience because of your grace. And now that we experience salvation, it is sanctifying us, changing us into more and more Christ-likeness while we wait for your return. When you return, we will, be, we will be changed in an instant with new bodies. We will experience the glorification. So God, I thank you and pray you bless the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.